It's Get Ready for Sunday, a podcast about getting more out of the Sunday Mass to be celebrated in a Catholic church somewhere near you this coming weekend. Specifically, it's an exploration of the scripture to be used in the Mass. Why? Because the deep truth and beauty scripture has to offer is often hidden by clunky language and our own lack of knowledge about the times and places it was written and about the people who wrote it and the people who were its first audiences. Thanks for clicking in. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not here to preach about the scriptures. Instead, I'll be sharing some insights, background, and context information gathered from theologians and scripture scholars as that is sifted through my own tiny brain. Today, that means examining the readings that are part of the Masses for September 19th, 2021. In church speak, it is the 25th Sunday in ordinary time of year B in the lectionary cycle. This week, there is a progression of a single core message running through all of Sunday's scripture passages. I'll capsulize the message as follows. God calls humanity to become servants who see beyond the materialistic, greedy self to trust divine providence and become bearers of mercy to society's most vulnerable. Self-centered lives yield fear, envy, conflict, and even death. Despite being persecuted by worldly powers, these servants will be free from being controlled by fear, greed, or malice. God's limitless generative love is best represented by a servant, much more so than by a conqueror. So, at this Mass, we first hear a passage from the Book of Wisdom. It is also known as the Wisdom of Solomon, although the consensus among scholars is that he was not the author. The book is generally understood to have been written about the year 50 B.C. The work is not a part of the Hebrew Bible, perhaps because it was written in Greek, perhaps because it appeared after the canon of Hebrew scripture had been finalized. Protestant Bibles also exclude it from their canonical, that is, recognized as divinely inspired, list of books. The book was part of the works included in the Septuagint, the earliest known translation of the Hebrew Bible, into Greek. Of its author, little is known other than what can be garnered from examining the text itself. The writer is believed to have been an observant and well-educated Jew, living probably in Alexandria. That city was the center of Jewish life in Egypt. The author's use of the Greek language is said to be very sophisticated and nuanced. His detailed and refined understanding of Hebrew scriptures demonstrates his Jewish heritage at the level of a learned rabbi. His writing demonstrates a high level of emotion for his subject matter, but not a philosopher's strict logical reasoning. There are occasional contradictions in his teachings here. He writes of the heart as the thinking part of a human, as was the Hebrew concept at the time, rather than the head, as the Greeks taught. 
He writes of a God who loves all creation, who both rewards and punishes human behavior. The presence of evil he attributes to the envy of the devil. The virtue of wisdom is the highest accomplishment to which a human can aspire. Wisdom is identified with the divine. Wisdom here is also personified as a feminine characteristic of God. The author also teaches that humans have an immortal soul, and that after death, the righteous will be with God. He does not, however, mention resurrection of the body. As a whole, the book is a defense of Judaism, at a time and in a place where Greek culture was overwhelming many Jews, many abandoning their traditions, many questioning, and many feeling isolated. Over its three-year cycle, the Catholic lectionary, the prescribed scriptures for masses, includes only 42 of the book's 436 verses on Sundays and solemn feasts. For the Mass we examine today, we have a four-verse passage that tells of a group of wicked people plotting against a righteous individual. In the context of Jews in Alexandria during that time, it could be taken to represent some who had abandoned the practice of their religion, taking great offense at the mere existence of observant members in the community. Here is the day's reading from the Book of Wisdom. The wicked say, Let us beset the just one, because he is obnoxious to us. He sets himself against our doings, reproaches us for transgressions of the law, and charges us with violations of our training. Let us see whether his words are true. Let us find out what will happen to him. For if the just one be the Son of God, God will defend him and deliver him from the hands of his foes. With revilement and torture, let us put the just one to the test, that we may have proof of his gentleness and try his patience. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to his own words, God will take care of him. The Word of the Lord. This is one of the passages that early Christians found to be a direct foreshadowing of the power elite of Jesus' day as they plotted against him, right down to the kind of torture, taunting, and murder these wicked ones anticipate and that Jesus did in fact endure. What we just heard as, He is obnoxious to us, in another translation is rendered as, he is inconvenient to us. What are they saying? He's embarrassing them by challenging the disregard they show for their own laws and traditions. The righteous man doesn't merely call them out on the issue. I infer from the passage that the just one also demonstrates in his life what is proper so that the whole community can see and compare. It seems quite clear that the wicked ones and the righteous man are members of the same community, so the contrast in behavior would be stark. Many scholars look at this passage and see a direct reference to and extension of 
the suffering servant about whom Isaiah wrote. The comparisons to what Christ suffered is amplified, of course, by the righteous man in this passage being called the Son of God. This could be a number of different claims in the time and place where the book was written. It could be a claim to royalty, as many cultures imagined their kings to be human manifestations of a god or a human descendant of a god. It might be a divinity claim, but probably not for the original audience. Most likely, say some commentators, is that it is a claim to an intimate, personal, even familial connection with God. There is also here a similarity to the story of Job, persevering in faith despite the terrible testing he must endure. He refuses to denounce God, even offers God praise, as painful losses are inflicted upon him by Satan. Here's a question for your consideration based on this reading. What injustice, what bad doings, grabs your attention in your immediate surroundings? Would you be considered obnoxious or inconvenient if you opposed it? Would that stop you? This is a great segue into the responsorial psalm of the day, which is taken from Psalm 54. The psalmist, who is understood here to be David, the unifier of the two Jewish kingdoms, simultaneously implores God's help while suffering and praises God for the relief and freedom he awaits so confidently. The backdrop is the action of King Saul and his men in hunting for David intent on taking his life. David is so confident in God's protection that he promises a sacrifice of thanksgiving even while still suffering persecution, before the saving actions of God are visible to him at all. That is trust. Saul, the persecutor, is like the wicked men in the reading we just heard from the Book of Wisdom. He plots and acts to take down the righteous one while being blind to the level of faith that is displayed by the one he seeks to kill. I'll read the refrain only at the beginning and the end of the psalm, which is as follows. The Lord upholds my life. O God, by your name save me, and by your might defend my cause. O God, hear my prayer, hearken to the words of my mouth, for the haughty have risen up against me, the ruthless seek my life. They set not God before their eyes. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord sustains my life. Freely I will offer you sacrifice. I will praise your name, O Lord, for its goodness. The Lord upholds my life. That refrain could be taken as a succinct summary of the message and hope offered in all of today's scripture passages. Our second main reading for the fourth consecutive week comes from the letter of James. The first three weeks, we heard the writer's compelling arguments for the inseparability of good works and faith. His position? True faith will inevitably produce good, generative, charitable actions. 
a claim to have faith accompanied by an absence of such actions is an empty claim. Now, we're at the end of the third into the beginning of the fourth chapter of James. In the preceding verses, he has drawn distinctions between true and false wisdom. He labels as false wisdom those considerations that are, in his words, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James is a great fit to follow the reading from the Book of Wisdom. This letter compares well thematically with the wisdom literature of the Hebrew Scriptures. The general tone of today's passage reflects directly on the wicked plotters in today's reading from wisdom and on the implied actions ascribed to King Saul in the psalm. It seems to be directly addressing the persecutors represented in both readings. It is a summation of causes and consequences when true service to the community is abandoned in favor of self-enrichment and self-aggrandizement. These self-seeking ambitions are fueled by envy of others, their possessions and positions within the community. All this error, this falsehood which often masquerades as wisdom, is the product of earthly, unspiritual, and demonic ways of thinking. The consequences are dire. This is then a reading from the letter of James. Beloved, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every foul practice. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without inconstancy or insincerity. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace for those who cultivate peace. Where do the wars and where do the conflicts among you come from? Is it not from your passions that make war within your members? You covet, but do not possess. You kill and envy, but you cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not possess, because you do not ask. You ask, but do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The Word of the Lord. The writer first lists characteristics of true wisdom, the wisdom from above, against which he contrasts the result of the false. In a different translation, the connection between covetousness and mayhem is more direct. The New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, widely trusted by scholars across many faith traditions, reads, You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. In the final verses of this passage, we hear about not receiving because of not asking or not asking properly. Both the Jerusalem and the New Jerusalem translations render ask as pray, making God's role more evident. Finally, we hear of prayer or request going unanswered because the request was motivated by passions. 
While passions is a powerful word, it is also rather neutral in distinguishing good from destructive motives. Again, turning to the Jerusalem Bible, we get a more accurate picture of the meaning here. It reads, You have not prayed properly. You have prayed for something to indulge your own desires. Unfortunately, our lectionary ends the passage there. The verse immediately following is considered by many the heart of the entire letter. Again, from the Jerusalem Bible, it reads, You are as unfaithful as adulterous wives. Don't you realize that making the world your friend is making God your enemy? Clearly, the world here is used to connote the self-centered, materialistic aspect of human society. The sexist language implying that only women can be adulterers is unfortunate and, in fact, does refer to a common social standard of that time. So, the words of James also give us a picture of consequences to be expected when one's concentration moves from being of service to others and becomes focused on self-interest, self-satisfaction, self-indulgence. Second reading, second question to consider. The writer lists compliant as a characteristic of wisdom from above, meaning being willing to listen to others openly and respectfully, and even being willing to be changed by what they say. Here's your question. Who or what subject matter makes that most difficult for you? Now we move on to the gospel passage of the day. Last week, we heard Jesus predict his own torture, execution, and resurrection for the first time. That was very near the end of chapter 8 in Mark's gospel. Now we are deep into chapter 9, and a lot has happened in Mark's chronology of Jesus in between. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a high mountain, and was transfigured before them. Jesus had cured a boy, an epileptic demoniac, after his disciples had failed in their attempt. Today we hear Jesus predicting his suffering, death, and resurrection a second time, and hear of the disciples engaging in a little self-aggrandizement, prompting a memorable, if somewhat enigmatic, demonstration from Jesus. Here is the passage. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus and his disciples left from there and began a journey through Galilee, but he did not wish anyone to know about it. He was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be handed over to men, and they will kill him. And three days after his death, the Son of Man will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to question him. They came to Capernaum, and once inside the house, he began to ask them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they remained silent. They had been discussing among themselves on the way who was the greatest. 
Then he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If any one wishes to be first, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. Taking a child, he placed it in their midst, and putting his arms around it, he said to them, Whoever receives one child such as this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. The Gospel of the Lord. It's pretty easy to divide this passage into two distinct parts. First, Jesus making the second prediction about the fate that is awaiting him in Jerusalem. Although we don't have any specific information at this point in the gospel about details, it's a good bet that the disciples at least suspected Jerusalem would be the climax. The opening statement, Jesus and his disciples left from there marks the end of the public ministry of Jesus in Galilee. From his desire that no one outside the group of his disciples know about this journey, we can safely assume Jesus intended this time to be an opportunity for direct, intimate, and consequential teaching with his followers, most specifically the Twelve. And they are back in Jewish territory, their own homeland. One might assume an atmosphere of relief would come among the company. Yet for a second time, Jesus is blunt about what awaits him. The group fails to understand. There's room for speculation here. Did they not want to understand? Mark says they were afraid to ask him about the prediction. Were they afraid of getting dressed down again by Jesus for their slowness? Were they afraid to have to begin considering the implications for their own lives contained in this prediction? They enter a house in Capernaum. This town had been something of a home base for their movements, especially early in Jesus' public ministry. It is referred to as the house, not merely a house. So we might assume that it belonged to a member of the group. Maybe Peter. Maybe Jesus. Or to a devoted friend. There is a sense of familiarity, whatever the detail about ownership of the house. When questioned about their argument on the journey, again, they remain silent. No explicit reason is given. We might assume they were embarrassed to have been bickering over internal politics while Jesus must have been pondering his fate. It might come off as a tiny bit petty and insensitive. Clearly, Jesus knew the answer to the question before he asked it, and he required no confession from them in order to address the issue. The scripture says, Then he sat down. This is an important detail. Being seated is the position from which the master would teach in that culture. He wanted them to know they were about to hear or experience something really important. We continue to honor that posture in our church life today. Whenever a bishop is proclaiming something of great importance or celebrating something momentous, like ordaining priests or deacons, 
it is done from his chair of authority. In Latin, chair is cathedra. The bishop's home church within a diocese is where the chair, the cathedra, is located. The church is known as the cathedral. What he says to those gathered is the opposite of standards held by the secular culture at the time. It is the opposite of the broader culture even today. He embraces a child. We don't know if it's a girl or a boy and makes this child an example of those whom his followers should honor and serve. We can fall victim to sentimentality in the way we imagine this scene. We see a child and think of innocence, openness, and parental instincts. In fact, the culture of the day did not value children at all, did not recognize them as people worth caring about, they were liabilities to a family until they were finally able to work. Like servants or slaves or women, they were completely dependent on the good will of the male head of the household for all their necessities of life. A number of commentators have noted that the Aramaic word for child also means servant. Jesus tells his disciples, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. To say, in my name, is to say, because of the child's relationship to me, or because they are in my care. He is making it very clear that to follow him will involve exposure to both rejection and violence. Further, the mission of those who wish to follow is to bring relief and freedom to those who are least able to accomplish it on their own. Ponder this question. How would you rate yourself, your family, your church community relative to that mission? Okay, enough for this week. If you find this time valuable, please tell somebody else about it. If you have comments, suggestions, or questions for me, the email address is getreadyforsunday, run together as a single word, getreadyforsunday at cccc.tucson.org. I pray you are able to celebrate God's love in community this week. Remember, we each care for our own soul by caring for others. God bless you.